You are listening to a sermon by Robin Lee, Executive Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A.com. Today's passage comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And I'm going to actually read from the insert. And so if you note there, it says the ESV, but it's actually the NIV. Just like to mix it up every once in a while. So I'm going to read from the NIV here so that we can all be reading together the same passage. I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you're able as a sign of reverence. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that ye may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this service. We thank you for everything that we've already done, everything we've participated in up to this point. We confess and we proclaim that Jesus, you are the king and we surrender our lives to you. And now Holy Spirit, would you speak to our minds and hearts and search our hearts and things and areas that we need to hand over and submit to you. I pray that you would convict us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. About three weeks ago, my wife and I drove up to LA with my daughter to help her move into her new apartment. She's been with us her whole life, and now she's transferring to UCLA as a junior. We got there in the afternoon, and my wife was helping my daughter unpack her clothes and her makeup and getting her all of her things situated in the cupboards and the dressers. And I was out in the living room putting a dresser together. And because I didn't have my electric drill and I'm not exactly the most handy guy, what should have taken about one hour took about four hours. And it was painful for my hand. And during those four hours of assembling the dresser and um, and forming blisters, I had a lot of time to think. I had a lot of time to think about the magnitude of that moment, the, the magnitude of this apartment, of my daughter living alone apart from us, and what it would mean, what it would mean for us, what it would mean for her, new friends, obviously, new experiences, new opportunities, temptation, um, loneliness, all of the things that I recalled as I started college. And We had a nice long dinner in Koreatown and then we came back to her apartment and we were just sort of lingering around for a while because we weren't ready to leave. And then eventually came time to leave, right? And we were there and um, I remember, okay, well, it's 
time to go. But before we do that, we, we huddled up in the middle of the living room and we held, our, held hands together and we bowed our heads and we began to pray. And then I kind of became a mess because in that moment, a lot of different memories went through my mind and all of these emotions that are attached to those memories ran through my mind. And I was, um, I think, overwhelmed and I was, um, again, thinking about the magnitude of that moment and internally I was, I, I, was, I, was, I was going through all kinds of emotions and I was overwhelmed that I, there's so much I wanted to say to her, so much that as a father I want to convey how much I love you. And this deep, deep longing and of all of the things that you've come to learn about Jesus and about, about our faith community and about the church, this deep, deep longing that she would remain in the vine that is Jesus, and that she would bear the beautiful and glorious fruit of faith. And many of you have gone, <clears throat> gone through this experience. Some of you have gone through that this year as well. Some of you who have young, young toddlers think that that's forever away. Don't blink, it happens really fast. And about 2,000 years ago, as the Apostle Paul was sitting in a Roman cell, he was going through in some ways similar kinds of emotions and thoughts. Paul writes this letter to the believers in Ephesus, and we know from his missionary journeys that he visited Ephesus twice, he visited the leaders once, and with the Ephesians, with these believers, he spent two and a half years with them, which is a long time for the Apostle Paul. He worked with them, he went through the daily grind, he taught them, he discipled them, he counseled them, and over this extended period of time, he's become very intimate with them. He's grown to care for them a lot. In fact, in the letter of Ephesians, from beginning to end, what's splattered throughout are these words that are loaded with emotion and affection, words that convey care and earnest desire and hope and joy for them, words and emotions that you might expect from a father who has invested his entire life to his son or daughter. The book of Ephesians is broken up um, into two halves. It has six chapters. The first three chapters deal with the things that you need to know, the gospel, who it's for and what it is. And the next three chapters of Ephesians is all about living it out. How do you live out the things that you believe? And this passage that we're reading right now, it's right in the middle of this letter. And it's, it works as a transition point and and what Paul is trying to convey here is before you can get from the things that you believe to living out what you believe, there's a, a, a prayerfulness and a power and there's a love of Jesus that you need to know. If you're going to deal with the temptations of sexual temptation, in a promiscuous society, if you're gonna deal with angry people and not sin, if you're gonna to learn to live patiently with those people who annoy you, there are things that you need to know. Paul, in the latter three chapters of Ephesians, talks about these foundational relationships, relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and kids, between workers and bosses, and it's in the context of these foundational relationships that the things that we believe are lived out. And what Paul wants to assure is to ensure 
is that we are Christians that not only live in the first three chapters where we know our things and we know what we believe, but we fail to live it out. All of us have interacted with believers. We visited churches where people really know their Bibles, they know their doctrine, they know the, the, their views on very sensitive topics, but you don't, you don't experience a lot of grace or kindness. And what Paul is, is intent on doing is to ensure that we don't become that kind of believer. What Paul wants is the the gloriousness and the immeasurableness of the treasures of the gospel to radically reshape and to reorient every facet of our lives. What he's calling for is nothing less than a new life, new life, Presbyterian church. And isn't that what we want? In a time where this still very highly contentious and confusing time that we live in. To live such lives that unbelievers would be drawn to us, to be the kind of church where you want to invite your friends to a spiritual family that not only knows things about Jesus, but forgives each other when we hurt and offend each other. To be the kind of church that cares for the real needs and pressing issues of our neighbors. How will we become the kind of believer, the kind of church that not only believes the right things, but lives the right way? And from this passage, I wanna share three things, and of course, this is not an exhaustive list, but as I was studying and preparing for this message, these are the three that emerged for me. And the first is prayer. Prayer. Now, we know that Paul prayed a lot. In fact, in just about every letter that he writes, he begins by giving thanks to God and reminding them that he's remembering that in prayer, that he's praying for them. He does this in Romans 1, Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, to name a few. In just about every one of his letters, that's how he begins. He reminds them that I am praying for you. But Paul's prayers seem to be fueled by two things, not just from today's passage, but if you read all of his letters, what I discern is are two things that fuel his prayer. And the first is this extreme gratitude for the gospel. Gratitude for the work of Jesus on the cross. That's what fuels him first. Second, it's a sense of desperation to see the work of Jesus on the cross transform them. Verse 14 begins with, for this reason I bow my knees. For this reason I pray. And what's this reason that he's referring to? And the verses in chapter three preceding today's passage speaks to that. And in summary, it's the gospel. Paul says that it's the love of God in Christ Jesus that forgives sinners as messed up as him. But that a, a love of Jesus that not only forgives sinners like him, but thoroughly transforms him, calls him into service, gives access to Jesus whenever he needs it, and secures a place for him in heaven. Paul describes this as unsearchable riches in verse eight. Extreme gratitude for the work of Jesus and secondly, a desperation to see the work of Jesus powerfully transform the lives of believers in the same way that it transformed him. And that's what the following verses in our passage deal with. And it's almost like the combined weight of gratitude and recognition of what Jesus has done on the cross for him and this desperation, this deep longing to see the work of Jesus transform believers, the believers in Ephesus and the believers here, it's the weight of all of these things that cause him to just drop to his knees. Now you see, in Paul's day, 
the posture, the, the ordinary posture for prayer was standing. We don't do that today, but back in Paul's day, people would pray standing. But there were special occasions, desperate situations, or, or times of great need when you couldn't help and you would fall, you would drop to your knees. And we see this in the Old Testament. Occasions where people were so desperate, they were so in desperate need of, G- of God, they would drop to their knees. And Paul drops to his knees here today because he's desperate. And the reason I use the word desperate is because theologians who study this passage will tell you that the grammar structure that's used here is the super superlative. It's been so long since I studied grammar, I didn't even know what that was, but it's the super superlative. In verse 20, for example, as Paul is trying to convey a thought, it's like he doesn't have the words to adequately capture it. And so he says, Jesus is going to do more no, that's not good enough. Jesus is going to do far more. No, Jesus is going to do far more abundantly. Well, Jesus is going to do far more abundantly than you can ask, um, far more abundantly than you can ask or think about asking. You see that? It's a lot of simple words, and he's adding all these additional words to convey a really important point. It's almost like when a child is talking to his mom and he wants to tell her how much he loves her. He says, mommy, I love you so much. I love you more than anything. I love you more than, um, I love you the most. In fact, I love you the mostest, right? You just start adding words to convey a thought and you don't have the words to, to capture and convey this, this um, love. And in the same way, Paul is struggling to convey a very, very important thought. Now, when you want to see something good happen so earnestly in, someone lo- in someone's life, you become desperate for it. You guys know what I mean? Something that you want to see happen so powerfully in another person's life, you almost feel it inside. In some ways, if I go back to that time a few weeks ago in my, apart- in my daughter's apartment, what the flood of emotions that overwhelmed me, I would say I was desperate. But there was also another time that I felt desperate, also with my daughter, but in a very different setting. My daughter is 20. About 10 years ago, we were having a barbecue at our community pool. It was sort of the end of the summer swim and barbecue day before school started. And I was at one end of the pool where the grill was and grilling, talking, having a good time. And my wife was at the other end of the pool when all of a sudden she screams. And she says, Robin! get over here, and i it's the loudest I've heard her scream, and she was terrified. I ran over there wondering, what in the world's going on? Why is she making such a scene? I looked to my daughter, and I saw blood everywhere. And what had happened was, she was doing a lot of, <clears throat> she was doing a lot of swimming during that time, and she did a backflip. Such not a good idea now that um, what happened, so she did a backflip, but she was too close to the edge. She did a backflip, but on the way down, she hit her head against the side of the pool, the wall, and her head immediately split open four inches horizontally. And it was so deep, what happened was the, the scalp just goes, pulls back. And I'm sorry if this is too gory for some of the younger people here, but I want to convey the sense of desperation that I felt because it was so shocking. I'm looking at her school. Clearly, she had broken her nose. Um, She had fractured a part of her face near her eye socket. And 
It was, I've never seen anything like that in person. And immediately, I, there's nothing else I could do. I, I didn't think this was survivable. And so I prayed. And again, I don't think I dropped to my knees, but in my heart, I certainly did. Every ounce of me was praying, God, please save her. Please save her. Be merciful to her. Desperation comes in different ways at the pool. I was desperate for my daughter's physical safety. I was desperate that she would be okay. In the apartment, in that moment, I was desperate for my daughter's spiritual safety, for her spiritual health and vibrancy. And throughout the Gospels, some of the most powerful and transformative encounters that Jesus has is with people who are desperate. And if we're to live out what we believe, we need to be a praying church, praying with immense gratitude for the real powerful work of Jesus on the cross, praying with desperation as if our lives depended on it. And even as I say this and as I was preparing this sermon, I'll be the first to confess the first to confess that praying is hard. So much easier to talk about it. I don't want to deceive anybody here as if like praying is so easy. Praying is hard work. And John Piper, who is a pastor and an author out of Minnesota, and all of our Minnesotans here know, probably know who he is, um, he said that he, he received a letter from a friend who said that he was convicted by the Lord that one of his final ministries was going to be that of praying for John Piper every single day until he died. John Piper shares how surprised and how moved he was by that letter because he himself knows how difficult praying is and how few of us actually have people interceding for us. And as I was thinking about this, I was like, can you imagine if our church here if every single one of us committed to praying for even just one person in this room every single day, not till the rest of their lives, that's, that's a huge commitment, but what if every single one of us here, we prayerfully consider who is that person? It could be your spouse, it could be your child, it could be the person that annoys you. Pray for that person every single day fervently, and maybe even drop to your knees, fervently, what would, what would that be like? It would be awesome. So the first thing that we need as we consider uh, what it means to be a church that believes in the right things and lives in the right way, the first is prayer. We need to be a desperately praying church. Secondly, we need power. Power. Notice what Paul prays for. In verse 16, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, power through his spirit and the inner being. Paul knows that in order to live the Christian life, we need power. In order to overcome the onslaught of sexual temptation that comes at us from everywhere, we need power. If we're to live with courage and conviction in an environment that mocks the Christian faith, we need power. If we're to forgive and live in peace in our homes and in our churches, we need power. 
If we want to see conversions, lives transformed, our neighborhoods impacted by the gospel, we will need supernatural power, power of the Holy Spirit. There are a couple of things that we need to know about this power. The first is that this power is available to all believers. Of course, Jesus doesn't discriminate based on how much doctrine you know or how long you've been in the church. We're told in Acts chapter one, as Jesus is ascending into heaven, he promises that we will receive power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. This promise is given to all believers generously. The second This power that is at work within us is the exact same power, the same source that raised Jesus from the dead. You believe that? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that we have access to. Paul says in Ephesians 1 verses 19 and 20 that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power immeasurable greatness of his power toward us here at New Life who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, Paul is saying you have access to this incredible power. Do you believe? Let me give you an example. This is, feels like a silly example when I gave it at the first sermon. I'm, first service, I'm not sure if it, made, if it connected, but I'll do it again anyways. So imagine if you're you're a student, or imagine when, back when you were a student, and you have to write a 15-page paper. Or if that's easy, think about a 30-page paper. Just think about a really, really long paper that you need to write. And the only resource that you have are the notes that you took in class when the teacher was speaking, or maybe you got together with a study session with some of your buddies and you took some notes, and maybe, depending on the topic, you got a few conversations with your friends and family. And that's all you had, and you've been given this assignment. You've got to write a 15-page paper. That's all you've got. Notes from class, depending on how good of a student you are and how well, how quickly you can take notes. You've got maybe a few pages there. You've got some notes with your study group. How thorough how complete is that 15-page paper? See, for me, that would have been atrocious because, and that, was, that made sense in my mind, but now imagine if in addition to the notes from class and notes from your study session, you have the internet, right? Kind of a game changer, right? Millions of articles and videos and resources and plenty of other Uh, Papers that were probably written that's going to tempt you to plagiarize, but you have this incredible access to all of these resources, and it's like before the internet, after the internet, total game changer. It's just absolutely mind-boggling, right? You know, young people, it's crazy to think that there was actually a time when the internet didn't exist. (laughs) It's like, wow. You almost can't imagine what that was like. But as believers, what Paul is saying is, it's more than the internet. We've got this access to this incredible, infinite resource, this power source that can fuel us to live this transformative life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the supernatural divine power, is a power that we have access to. Pastor John Piper, again, he suggests several ways that we can seek the power of the Holy Spirit. And he has a list of several things, but I wanna highlight just three 
that I think are helpful. He says, first, immerse yourself in the word of God. Immerse yourself in the word of God. In Luke 4, in that passage, we read that Jesus is tempted by the devil. In every encounter, how does Jesus overcome the devil's attacks? Scripture. He begins with, it is written. We're told that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit is at least partially due to the fact that he's filled up with God's word. And I know from my own firsthand experience that there is a very big difference in my battle with temptation and um, the, the things that come at me when I'm in the word, I'm meditating on it, I'm striving to um, journal through it, pray through it, apply it, right? There's a different sense of um, a power of the spirit as you're immersed in God's word. And just as a side point, um, if you know that there are certain vices or temptations or struggles that you're naturally, you just give into, it's, it's a powerful thing to just even have a few verses that to have and to commit into in your minds and your hearts so that when that temptation comes, you can draw from God's word and, 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 and to fight against that temptation. So first, immerse yourself in the word of God. Secondly, pray earnestly for it. Pray fervently for the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 11, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, of course, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, so they already have the Holy Spirit in him, but there's something here where Jesus is encouraging them to pray so that they might experience more of the fullness of the Spirit, more of the fullness of the Spirit's power and presence in their lives, working in them, changing them, and using them to affect others, to be a blessing. And that's what Paul is reiterating in verse 19 of today's passage when he prays that the believers in Ephesus might be filled with the fullness of God. A question for all of us and, and for me as I was preparing, am I experiencing this supernatural power? Am I praying for it? Am I pursuing it? Am I asking for it? The supernatural power that enables us to, to respond with grace when you're in front of that person that annoys you and just grinds at you. The supernatural power that enables you to say no to that temptation and that sin and to say yes to obedience and righteousness. This is something that we need to be praying for. Third, obey the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.32 says, and we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Again, this is addressing people who've already been filled, who already have the Holy Spirit. And just as much as Jesus tells us that when we remain in the vine, we will bear much fruit, there's a connection. I wouldn't say it's a one-to-one -one connection, but there is a connection between the obedience to the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. And as we obey the Spirit's prompting and leading in our lives, we become filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, conversely, by living in disobedience and rebellion, we should expect to see less of the Spirit's power working in us. Remember, Paul warns us against grieving the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4 through gossip and malice and sin. 
So for it to be filled with the power of the Spirit, we need to live in obedience to the Spirit. So as we strive to not only be a church that believes the gospel, but also lives out the gospel, the Christian life will need prayer, we need power, and third, we'll need to know how much we're loved. And in a little bit, I'll explain what I mean by love. A while back, I read a book titled The Narcissism Epidemic. It's written by two secular psychologists that are making observations about our culture and this massive rise in narcissism that they see taking place in our country and, and we're blessing by spreading it out to the rest of the world. That's, that's his, this book is about this observation, cultural observation. And according to the authors, from seemingly innocent baby outfits that read Daddy's Little Princess to reality shows to YouTube to Facebook to TikTok, all of us are encouraged to promote ourselves and broadcast ourselves to the world. And what results is an overly inflated view of oneself and one's importance, like the kitten that looks in the mirror and sees a lion. Our culture is breeding generations of people who have an enlarged and unrealistic sense of one's importance and abilities. For all of you who are over 25 and have no idea what TikTok is, um, it's another social media platform where you, up to 15 seconds, you can record yourself dancing, singing, doing something funny, and it's just, right, just record yourself and send it out to the rest of the world. And it's interesting because you have some people who are influencers because they have a following of, you know, 20, 30,000 people and they feel like they need to check in with their people, right? Because I'm, I'm that important. People care about what I ate or people care about my song. But what's interesting is you have people who have like 13 followers are like, I gotta check in with my people, right? Because all 13 people wanna know how I'm doing, right? And what, what happens is like this whole platform, this, the culture is sort of promoting this sense of self-importance. And the authors are concerned because they believe that this is bad for society. Let me read an excerpt. Understanding the narcissism epidemic is important because it's long-term consequences consequences are destructive to society. American culture's focus on self-admiration has caused a flight from reality to the land of grandiose fantasy. We have phony rich people with interest-only mortgages and piles of debt, phony beauty with plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures, phony athletes with performance-enhancing drugs, phony celebrities with reality TV, phony genius students with great inflation, a phony national economy which now sits at 27 trillion in government debt, phony feelings of being special among children with parenting and education focused on self-esteem, phony friends with social networking, the explosion of social networking. All this fantasy might feel good, but unfortunately, reality always wins. The mortgage meltdown and the resulting financial crisis are just one demonstration of how inflated desires eventually crash to earth. He says, all this fantasy might feel good, but unfortunately, reality always wins. You know, when you think about social media and how hyper-connected we are, and there's a sense of, I have, I have so many friends, right? But then there's this total increase in depression and, and mental illness. And what you see is what initially feels good, because I'm promoting it on social media, people like me, they're viewing it, but it, the reality is actually you're not connected. 
And it's, it's, it's disorienting, and we're seeing that taking place all over. And the author's point is that all of this is rooted in narcissism. And narcissism is destructive to the individual. Narcissism is destructive to families, and ultimately it's destructive to our society. And according to the authors, for the longest time, narcissism was seen as a way to over, overcompensate by people who were insecure, unhappy, and had a low view of themselves. So the solution to narcissism for people who felt insecure was to feed them more narcissism. Tell them how good you are. Tell them how beautiful, to you, how beautiful they are. Tell them all of these things, whether you believe it or not, because that's going to help deal with narcissism. And so imagine, you know, little Johnny who's not very good at soccer and he's insecure about that after a game where he contributed nothing to the game. He's in the car and he tells his mom, mommy, I'm the best player on the team, right? I'm the best in soccer. And, little mom, and mommy, who knows that little Johnny is not, um, feeds that insecurity by saying, yes, Johnny, you're the best, right? And what happens is tr we're treating narcissism with narcissism. And what I appreciate about this book, again, two secular psychologists, is that they're trying to diagnose what's happening in our culture, and I see it all around. I've heard that same conversation. I've had that conversation with my own kids, right? And again, we want to be gentle and careful as we raise our kids. We, want to, we know that we want to be encouraging, but there's a point that they're making. So I appreciate the evaluation of culture, but I disagree with their solution. Because what these authors are saying is, is that narcissism is wrong. You don't feed narcissism with narcissism. It doesn't work. The solution is you treat narcissism by practicing good deeds. Practice being humble. Practice being compassionate. Practice being patient. Now, initially, again, when you, when you hear that, it sounds right. It almost sounds Christian, right? But what happens is when you're now on your own, apart from the love of God, apart from Jesus fueling you, if you're generating internally and mustering up all of your own strength, all of your own will to be good, to practice compassion, it ultimately is still narcissism. It goes back to you. You have yourself to thank. You have yourself to pat on the back, right? But it's actually a little worse because now on top of narcissism, you've layered in a little bit of self-righteousness, right? Paul has an entirely different solution. Not more of self through self-promotion, but rather more of Jesus. Our deepest problem is not that we don't love ourselves enough. Our problem is that we don't know how much we're loved by Jesus. In fact, as Paul is trying to describe the love of Jesus for us, you sense his frustration. And I remember when my kids were younger, they would ask, Daddy, how much do you love me, right? And I would say, oh, I love you this much. I love you so, so much, right? I'm gonna fall over backwards. And in some ways, Paul is almost saying the same thing. He's talking about dimensions, right? He's talking about the, the breadth, the width, the length, and the height, and the depth. And as I was reading this, one of the commentaries that I read um, made an observation, which is, so obvious when I read it, but I completely gloss over it. What he says is when we typically think about dimensions, we think three-dimensionally, right? The width, the length, and the height. You know, you don't say, what's the width, the length, the height, and the depth, 
You think three-dimensionally. And it's almost like Paul is intentionally adding in this other dimension, even though the height and the depth captures the same measurement. He's speaking to believers who have been so enslaved and held captive to their sins, they're wondering, is the love of Jesus that good? Is it powerful enough? And so Paul is going out of his way to say, yes, the love of Jesus is like this, and it's like this, and it's like this. It's powerful enough. It's so multidimensional. It's so beautiful. It's so good. It's powerful enough to overwhelm and overcome and defeat every vice. It's, over, it's powerful enough to forgive every sin. That's how good and generous and beautiful and extravagant and immeasurable the love of Jesus is. And as I was reading this book and thinking about narcissism as a society, it dawned on me that narcissism can very well exist inside the church. We can easily become insecure, self-promoting, and self-serving, can't we? We can care more about our church, our doctrine, our worship style, or our size more than the global mission of God. We can feel threatened when other ministries around us seem to be going well. And when we see good things taking place at a church, if we don't check our hearts, we can downplay and not celebrate the work of God in that church because they're not as correct theologically. It's easy to become very critical because it's not coming back to us. And the solution to narcissism for the church is the same solution to narcissism for the individual. Know how incredibly loved you are by Jesus. Now, this sounds simple, but some, but some of the most simple things, as we know, are the most difficult to grasp. Only when we come to believe daily that we are seen, loved, valued, and treasured by the only one whose opinion actually matters can we stop this maddening pursuit of being loved and affirmed and accepted and cared for by others? And the only way that we can break out of ourselves, break out of this maddening, maddening need to be affirmed by others is to let the love of Jesus break in and to transform. As Paul tells us, let Christ dwell in your hearts. What does Paul have in mind when he says in verse 19 that we would know the love of Christ? Well, the word for know here in the Greek means a lot more than intellectual cognitive knowing. It involves a knowing that's experiential. It's the same word that Mary uses when the angel of God approaches her um, and tells her that she'll be pregnant. And Mary responds in Luke chapter 1, verse 34 by saying, how can this be since I do not know a man? The word know applies to knowing someone intimately and personally, experientially. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. The goodness and the kindness and the great love of Jesus is something that we're to savor and experience with our souls. It needs to be far more than an intellectual understanding of justification and the imputation of Christ's righteousness for you. It is certainly those things, but it's also far more than that. And Paul knows that knowing the love of Jesus is hard. In fact, he says it's impossible. 
which is why he prays that they would be and that we would be strengthened to comprehend this multifaceted love of Jesus. And of course, as one of your pastors, my hope and my desire is to see that we would become that kind of church where the love of Jesus, the gospel that we preach each and every week, with the power of the Spirit would radically reshape us, change us, transform us, and commission us out to live as his people. I'm gonna close with the story that I came across. Author Mary Ann Bird, who was a teacher and wrote, I believe, a couple of books, she wrote a memoir called The Whisper Test. The Whisper Test, and it's a personal story she's recounting from her life. She writes, I grew up knowing I was different, and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When classmates asked, what happened to your lip? I tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade that we all adored, Mrs. Leonard was her name. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. Annually, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class and finally it was my turn. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something and we would have to repeat it back. Simple statements like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth. There were seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little girl. Seven little words spoken by a teacher completely changed her life. She eventually became an acclaimed teacher who was known for her exceptional compassion and kindness. Seven simple words spoken by a teacher, powerful enough. Love conveyed through seven words that changed this girl's life. What is it that Jesus is whispering into our ears? We know the love of Jesus and how magnificent and how great and how big it is. What is it that Jesus is whispering into our ears? God, help us to become a community that is known for extending the compassion, kindness, grace, and immeasurable love of Jesus. May healing, reconciliation, restoration, new life, new births take place here. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is powerful. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit uses the word, fuels us, changes us, grows us, and uses us to impact the world. God, I pray for each and every one of us here that we would be believers that not only know the truth, know the gospel, the believers who are transformed by it, who live out the things that we believe. And God, we pray that you would do abundantly more 
than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to Robin Lee, Executive Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.